Hi, I'm Eric Voss, and Game of Thrones' second to last episode made it very clear what happens when you get in the way of destiny. Obey your queen, Sir Gregor. Oof, Kai burned. Daenerys Targaryen's destruction of King's Landing was one of the bloodiest, most horrific sequences of the entire series. And it's really hard to see how anything matters anymore. Are we all merely children playing with our sad wooden pig car toys waiting for Dragonfire to consume us all? I can't live that way. So I'm gonna break down this episode with another in-depth scene-by-scene analysis, pointing out all the subtle details that you might have overlooked and search for this deeper layer of meaning that I think we all desperately need. And before we begin, big announcement, new Rockstars will be hosting a live watch party of the Game of Thrones finale episode this Sunday, May 19th in New York City, Brooklyn's Hotel Red Lion. Check out the description for more details and let's get started. The episode opens in Dragonstone on an extreme close-up of a letter that Varys is writing. Doesn't require much zooming and enhancing, I guess, but um, pause and read. It says, is not the only Targaryen left, Rhaegar and Lyanna, their son lives still, hidden by Eddard Stark. His name is, is the true heir to the Iron Throne. Last episode, Varys indicated to Tyrion that he was going to take measures to weaken Daenerys' claim to the Iron Throne in favor of Jon. Varys also indicated connections with other parts of Westeros, including Yara Greyjoy in the Iron Islands and a new Prince of Dorne. So presumably Varys is sending ravens everywhere. The Iron Islands, Dorne, perhaps even the Vale, the Citadel at Old Town, the Iron Bank of Braavos, urging the realm to back Jon instead. Remember, Ned Stark also used his final hours to raven messages around Westeros to reveal the truth that Joffrey was not the rightful heir, creating such a divide that his execution led to the War of the Five Kings. Varys' pre-execution mailers might lead to a similar conflict between Daenerys and the other realms. Varys is visited by this girl named Martha! And nothing. She won't eat. We'll try again at supper. This is one of Varys' little birds, his network of child spy operatives. And it sounds like Varys' plan might have been to poison Daenerys. With Martha in the kitchen. Danny dying this way would make Jon descendancy a lot easier, obviously. And we know Varys has plotted to poison Danny before. It could even be possible that Varys has already been gradually poisoning Danny, steadily contributing to her degraded physical state and her madness. Varys greets Jon on the beach, saying, They say every time a Targaryen is born, the gods toss a coin and the world holds its breath. This is a quote that we've heard before from Barristan Selmy in A Storm of Swords, the book, and from Cersei in season two. What's the old saying? Every time a Targaryen is born, the gods flip a coin. The quote describes the crapshoot of Targaryen temperament. Some are noble, wise leaders, others are mad and cruel. And you actually might have heard Cersei quoting this saying in the previous Leon segment before this episode, ringing in Daenerys' ears among several other key past lines. Also included in there were Elena Tyrell advising her to be the dragon, and Daenerys' brother Viz Zara's warning, you don't want to wake the dragon, do you? All of these are meant to draw a line through all of Daenerys' past influences to this moment, her breaking point, when she sees the only way to reclaim her power as becoming the dragon and striking fear in the hearts of others, landing on the side of the coin that the realm dreads. Varys then tells Jon, men decide where power resides. Like Tyrion did last episode, Varys is reminding us again of his riddle from season two about the king, the priest, and the rich man trying to control a sellsword. Power resides where men believe it resides. It's a trick, a shadow on the wall. In this example, John is a sellsword between the monarch, Danny, the rich man, Tyrion, and the priest, Varys, who may actually be an operative of Lord of Light, more on that in a sec. But like the sellsword of the riddle, John truly has the power if he were to claim it. But John has given in to this trick that others are more powerful than he is just because they cast a larger shadow. Tyrion checks in on Danny, whose hair is now undone. Since season one, Danny's hair has been tied in an increasingly elaborate braid called a jahak, 
a Dothraki word for the warrior's braid that only gets cut if they ever lose in battle. Danny's braid being gone now could reflect her loss, both her increasing isolation and the loss of Missande, who may have been the one to tie this braid for Danny in the past. Really sucks to lose your only hairdresser. Danny's silver hair now dropping her shoulders makes her look a lot more like her father, the Mad King Aerys II. And some have described her disheveled, gaunt look as similar to her brother, Viserys. In either case, Danny has plunged further into the bitterness and paranoia of both her mad male relatives. So Varys gets arrested and brought down to the beach because Danny warned him last season, if you ever betray me, I'll burn you alive. Varys' execution by fire on this beach echoes Stannis Baratheon's executions in the same location in season two, in the name of the Red God. Both Stannis and Daenerys were unable to inspire love in their followers, forcing them to appeal to fear and cruelty. But above this beach, the night sky glitters with interesting red stars. Could Varys' death here also be under the eyes of the Red God, the Lord of Light? Last season, on the cliffs overlooking this beach, Red Priestess Lady Melisandre told Varys, I have to die in this strange country, just like you. Varys' whole life has been tied to the Red God. As a boy, a sorcerer castrated him and threw his parts into a fire. The flames turned blue when I heard a voice answer his call. In Season 6, Chief Red Priestess Kinvara shook Varys by somehow knowing about this moment. Should I tell you what the voice said? Should I tell you the name of the one who spoke? And note that Varys removed his rings before getting arrested, and a close-up showed flames reflecting in his eyes. Both also true for Lady Melisandre back in Episode 3 this season. Her eyes glowed with flames from the power of the Red God, and right before her death, she removed her necklace. Also, just like the Army of the Dead looming in from a wall of darkness, here, Drogon appears from the dark, a knight that is dark and full of terrors. So if Varys is playing a role for the Lord of Light, what is that role? Varys' death is a bigger game changer than it seems. Not only did he spread the flame of the truth of Jon's identity around Westeros, Varys was always the last line of defense for the realm, innocent children. So in a broader sense, Varys' removal exposes the realm's children to the horrors of war. And we'll see how that happens this episode. Jon witnesses this execution. There's definitely some judgment in his eyes. John comes from the northern tradition of just executions, where, to quote Eddard Stark, the one who passes a sentence should swing the sword. John carried out that kind of justice on John of Slint and his traitorous brothers of the Night's Watch, but Danny's execution of Varys reminds him of what Sam warned him about Danny executing Randall and Dickon. Now he's seeing this brash temperament firsthand. And before we move on, little detail here, Tyrion affectionately touches Varys' arm and Varys reacts in shock. That's because Varys has rarely, if ever, been physically touched by any other character on this show. He's always been presented as this kind of ghostly, intangible spider, master of whispers. But in this moment, this touch reminds us that he is human and sadly, mortal. Even more sadly, very flammable. Danny gives Grey Worm Masande's slave collar her one possession. Masande kept it because it represented how Danny was the breaker of chains, but now by burning it, Grey Worm and Danny are burning the bridge to Danny's past goal to liberate with limited bloodshed, as she did to the slaves of Yunkai and Marine. And shortly after this, she tells John that in Westeros, she'll never be as loved as he is. So let it be feared. When Danny and John kiss, she puts her hands around his neck. Actually, later in this episode, Jamie and Cersei's final moment, Jamie embraces her the same way. And in a sign of more brotherly love, the mountain also chokes the hound. Could this mean that John and Danny will suffer the same mutually assured destruction that those other two pairings did? Tyrion proposes this plan to have the bells of King's Landing rung when the city surrenders to call off the assault, but notice that Danny doesn't consent to it. She just kind of gives a slight nod to Grey Worm. Wait for me outside the city. You'll know when it's time. This hints that for Danny and Grey Worm, sacking King's Landing isn't just about strategy, it's about sloppy revenge. 
change. And later, it'll be Grey Worm who initiates that shift into Operation Scorched Earth, spearing the surrendered Lannister captain after seeing Danny and Drogon Dracarys the city. Danny's dark turn is signaled by the music here. Composer Ramin Jawadi was on fire this episode, as so much of the episode was. And here, he plays the Dragon and the Wolf theme, but instead of these standard violins, he uses the low, low notes of an upright bass. It creates this ominous sense of dread. In King's Landing, director Miguel Sapochnik focuses on this short-haired woman and her daughter. Now, these anonymous civilians are exactly the innocents that Varys was seeking to protect, and Sapochnik returns to them over and over throughout the episode as kind of point-of-view characters to depict this ground-level fallout. Tyrion finds his brother Jaime in captivity, telling him to find a boat that Ser Davos will have left for him in the same shoreside tunnel location that leads to the Red Keep that they used last season. He begs Jaime to go with Cersei to live quietly in Pentos. Fleeing to Pentos would be exactly what Danny and Viserys did when Cersei's husband, Robert, took the throne from them. But in the brothers' final scene together, Tyrion frees Jaime, coming full circle with Jaime freeing Tyrion at the end of season four. We'll have to see what consequences this has for Tyrion. Danny did tell him last episode, the next time you fail me will be your last. But moving on to King's Landing, Jawadi scores the moments leading up to the battle with some interesting orchestration. Boom, boom, boom. He's playing three notes from an upright bass, bending each one down. It's actually a variation on his bass line from the Dracarys theme, which we first heard when Daenerys and Drogon Dracarys Oliver Astapor. Boom, boom, boom. But there, those notes bend upward. So inverting the notes to bend downward here reflects Danny's inversion of her priorities. When freeing Astapor, Daenerys burnt the city but spared the common people and slaves. Now, Daenerys does not at all make that distinction. But Sapochnik's camera certainly does. In this pre-battle montage, the director mixes shots of preparing soldiers with the common folk. A boy playing with a toy, women shuttering their windows, a baby crying, and again, this unnamed mother and daughter. Whom, if you notice, the Hound and Arya shove past to get into the Red Keep right before the gates close. Arya notices them before the two get locked out, and Sapochnik is using these commoners as foils to Arya. Here, Arya selfishly takes these two's place in line and dooms them, but later, after stepping back from the fight, Arya becomes a first responder struggling to help these same people. Euron Greyjoy is the first to spot Drogon, whom you can barely make out outlined in the sun the very first time Euron looks skyward. This partly explains how Daenerys was able to get the jump on the Iron Fleet, despite being caught with her pants down last episode. Daenerys is flying with the sun at her back. She's using the glare of the sun to blind Euron and to get a head start on the dive. Actually, in Lord of the Rings The Two Towers, Gandalf similarly uses sunlight in this charge with the Rohirrim at Helm's Deep. Danny's also smart to stay low along the water, forcing the scorpions to slowly re-aim so that she can torch them before they get their shots off. Some have also speculated that Drogon might have been more effective against the artillery than like Rhaegal or Viserion were because he has Danny on his back, like a second set of eyes to help him duck and roll. Meanwhile, at the North Gate, the Golden Company lines up against Jon's allied forces. The Golden Company's sigil is a pile of skulls with a pike through them, the skulls representing the past captain's general. Their current captain is Harry Strickland, who does not sound like a Game of Thrones character. He sounds like uh, the guy your dad golfs with. His soul purpose this season seems to be to put a semi-recognizable face on the other side of this battle line because Sapochnik deliberately frames Strickland the same way he framed John in the Battle of the Bastards in season six. One camera crane upshot 
shot and a later shot of Strickland facing the cavalry charge. But unlike John, Strickland retreats in fear, but the focus on his perspective is a tactic by Sapochnik to blur the lines between the heroes and the villains of this battle. And throughout this sequence, we will see how it increasingly devolves into a messy slaughter in which there is no clear good side. Drogon torches the defenses and the allied forces breach the city. And as Cersei observes this, Jawadi scores the dragonfire with the Targaryen theme, but played in a minor key. So even though this feels like a victory that we should celebrate, the music foreshadows how Daenerys' bloodlust will plunge this victory into pure horror. This descent is scored with a shift in the music to this familiar tune. You might recognize this as Jawadi's Light of the Seven music. It's a theme from the season six finale when Cersei watched the Sept of Baelor burn in wildfire. So using the score again here is linking these moments of terrorism. Mad queens seizing the Iron Throne with fear and fire. The Lannister soldiers surrender and the city bells ring, which Tyrion intends as a white flag, of course, signaling the ending of further bloodshed. This episode is titled The Bells, and bells carry an interesting significance on the series. Remember in season two, prior to the last time King's Landing was under attack, Varys told Tyrion, I've always hated the bells. They ring for horror. A dead king, a city under siege. A wedding. Exactly. Indeed, bells have often been the sound of coming doom on Game of Thrones. They rang at Baylor for Ned Stark's execution. They rang the morning of the Sept of Baylor's destruction. And when Daenerys had her dragon stolen from her in Karth in season two, the city bells rang then too. Bong, bong. Where are my dragons? And now, just as Varys predicted, these bells ring for horror once more. Daenerys eyes the Red Keep, a castle built by her Targaryen ancestors, and the castle stolen from her family, forcing her into exile in a long, brutal journey home. And unlike the others of forces down on the street, Daenerys is alone atop Drogon, evoking another past quote from the previously on montage from Maester Aemon, Daenerys' distant relative. A Targaryen alone in the world is a terrible thing. Remember that line ended with a foreshadowing appearance of Jon, secretly another Targaryen alone in the world, and now Daenerys' isolation has convinced her that fear is the only way to win respect to the people, so a military surrender is not enough. She feels that she needs to decimate as much of the city as possible, root and stem. There's actually a fascinating visual detail that you might have missed here, but First, thank you to Manscaped for sponsoring this video. Look, fellas, doing any grooming downstairs can make a guy feel like the Night King around Valerian Steel. You know, just one nick and, uh, deal stab, shatter. Plus, it turns out that you should not use the same razor to trim your beard that you use to trim other places. Something I, uh, definitely knew already. Manscaped.com is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming and hygiene, with tools created by a team of aerospace engineers who are actually featured on Shark Tank. So this is the Lawnmower 2.0. It's a waterproof trimmer with a powerful 6,000 RPM motor. It has a replaceable ceramic blade head with skin-safe technology, meaning you won't get nicked or snagged or root and stemmed like Varys. Manscaped.com lets you get a replacement blade delivered every three months to ensure the trimmer stays hygienic. And guys, their Perfect Package 2.0 Manscaping Kit also comes with Crop Preserver, Moisturizing Deodorant, Crop Reviver Spray, Crop Cleanser Shower Gel. They got cologne and my favorite, this Magic Matte Disposable Shaving Mat with comics to read in there. So you can stop flagging your Game of Thrones books. You know, nothing's more embarrassing than lending down a Dance of Dragons and finding your random body hairs bookmarking certain pages. So give Manscaped a shot. It's risk-free with a 30-day money-back guarantee. And here's a special free gift for all of our new Rockstar subscribers. The Shed Travel Bag. Yeah, baby, get 20% off, plus free shipping, plus this free gift with the code ROCKSTARS20 at manscaped.com.
Okay, back to King's Landing. As Drogon soars over the city, there's this shot of a shadow over the roofs, which is an image from Bran's future vision back in Season 6. This means that Bran actually foresaw the destruction of King's Landing by Dragonfire. But he has also said that the future only comes to him in fragments, so there's a good chance that Bran didn't yet fully understand what would happen, or why people keep trying to hang tire swings from him. Daenerys' charge triggers a moral free-for-all on the streets below. Grey Worm spears a surrendered Lannister captain. Actually, the script for this episode described Grey Worm as an angel of death, said up the religious imagery at the end of the episode, and as the allied forces are depicted as the enemy, Sapochnik includes other shots painting Lannister soldiers as heroes, with Jon seeing one of them waving civilians to safety, looking like a firefighter. This reversal continues as Jon has to kill one of his own soldiers to stop him from raping a woman. This horror of war was actually foreshadowed by a very dark description of the previous sack of King's Landing by Robert's forces. This is in a scene with Ser Jorah, Barristan Selmy, and Daenerys. I was in King's Landing after the sack, Khaleesi. You know what I saw? A butchering. Baby children, old men, more women raped than you could count. There's a beast in every man, and it stirs when he put a sword in his hand. George R. R. Martin has always emphasized this kind of gritty realism in his depictions of war, actually critiquing J.R.R. Tolkien in the Lord of the Rings books, despite his obvious love and adoration of that series. He quibbled with Tolkien for depicting war as a battle of good versus evil, the fate of civilization, but Martin has argued that the vast majority of wars throughout history are not like that. They're actually a lot more like the battle that we saw in this episode. So while this battle goes on, Jaime runs into Euron Greyjoy. The two rivals for Cersei's heart have this vicious battle. Jaime ends up defeating him, but not after taking a few fatal stabs to one side, but I would say it's fitting for Euron Greyjoy, the pirate king, to die this way after resurrecting from the water to bring him full circle with his drowned god baptism. What is dead may never die. Drogon targets the Red Keep, blasting out the Lannister sigil in the window above the Iron Throne. Now, we aren't yet sure of the status of the Iron Throne itself, but the Red Keep is now looking a lot like Daenerys' vision of the ruined Red Keep in the House of the Undying in Season 2. What we thought was snow may actually be falling ash. If you remember, the opening credit imagery throughout the season has depicted King's Landing as clockwork, cogs in a wheel. So by destroying it, Daenerys is kind of making good on her promise to break the wheel. And nice touch here, a piece of rubble shatters Cersei's wine glass. The most heartbreaking thing for her to see, probably. Kyburn tells her to retreat to Magor's Holdfast. That's the Red Keep bunker where she and Sansa waited out in the Battle of Blackwater. Magor's Holdfast would be a better place to wait out the storm. And we hear this sad music. Dun, 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 dun. This music is the Reigns of Castamere, normally the Lannister victory song, but played here ironically. Because if you think about the lyrics, the song is about Cersei's ancestor, Titos Lannister who decimated the rival house Rain, Rain, Rain being a double entendre in the song, they burned their home of Castamere and executed every man, woman, and child of their house. That decimation has now come around to House Lannister, as Cersei gets ousted by a mad queen who's even more villainous than she is. Now one wonders what songs are right about Daenerys. Well, the mother of dragons burned everyone for no reason, and that's the end of the song, because we're dead. As they leave, the dragonfire consumes the city, along with these green wildfire plumes. Some are speculating that these could have been traps laid out by Cersei as landmines for the invaders, or maybe false flags that Cersei set up in case Daenerys chose not to use Drogon. Cersei could still burn parts of the city and blame it on Danny. But remember, Jaime told Brienne in the bath in Season 3 that the Mad King ordered his pyromancers to place caches of wildfire all over the city. So these explosions may have been those caches finally detonating. So if you think about it, Daenerys is finishing her mad father's work with madness of her own. In the Red Keep map room, the Hound restrains Arya from going to kill Cersei, and he grabs her while they're standing on the Riverlands of the map. A nod to Sandor taking Arya captive in the Riverlands in Season 3, but also protecting her. The Hound convinces Arya to turn away from her revenge quest, since Cersei's as good as dead anyway, and Arya says goodbye. Sandor, thank you. This is the first and only time Arya calls the Hound by his first name. Paralleling the moment, Jaime and Brienne drop Jaime's Kingslayer moniker. The Kingslayer! 
Jamie, my name is Jamie. The Hound then confronts his brother Gregor, the Mountain, giving fans the Game Bowl we've been waiting for. The Mountain kills Kyburn, smashing him against the wall. Ugh, like he did that commoner in season six. And back before the events of the series, the baby of Elia Martell. Kyburn has always been a Dr. Frankenstein figure to the Mountain, so it's fitting that Frankenstein is killed by his monster here. Zabotchnik stages fight on the stairs, which crumble when the upper levels of the tower collapse. So this is literally a stairway to nowhere, reflecting the fight between the Clegane brothers as aimless, without destination or prize. Just an epic cage match between two titans. The Mountain loses his helmet, revealing this bald, pale, scarred face of strongman Hafthor Bjornsson, similar to the reveal of Darth Vader's Paul Bale scarred face under his black armor. Gregor also strips off his chest plate because he doesn't care if he gets stabbed. It brings Gregor full circle with how he first saw Bjornsson as the character, shirtless, huge, and pummeling his opponent. He grabs the hound by the head and presses into his eyes, nearly crushing his head, just like he did to the Viper in season four. But before he can break all of our hearts, the hound stabs him in the eye, just like Leona Mormont did to the giant in episode three. And the hound dive tackles his brother through the wall into the fire, similar to Frodo tackling Gollum and the ring into the fire of Mount Doom. So the hound dies by finally confronting his fear of fire and letting it consume both himself and his greatest enemy, the brother who gave him these burn scars. Cersei and Jaime reunite in the map room, the last place they saw each other at the end of last season. And as the building crumbles, a crack forms across the map floor of Westeros, separating the southern half of Westeros from the Riverlands in the northern half. This could be foreshadowing the new dividing line that's forming between Daenerys in the south and the other realms like Sansa in the north. Arya wanders the chaotic streets outside in a long, unbroken tracking shot. It's hard to watch. There's death and carnage everywhere. She gets trampled and helped to her feet by the same short-haired mother. After more collapsing buildings and rubble, she later wakes up with a nasty head wound. All this chaos here was actually designed to evoke the infamous firebombing of Dresden in World War II, which, much like Danny firebombing King's Landing, was an air raid on what the Allies considered to be an enemy city, but the bombings famously led to high civilian casualties and have been critiqued by many historians as unnecessary. But Daenerys' behavior here is clearly nothing short of war crimes. Her dragon represents the power of nuclear weapons, in our world, the ability to level an entire city. It's very much an unfair advantage. Actually, the mother and daughter who saved Arya are found as charred corpses, evoking the way human remains were found in the aftermath of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the volcanic eruption of Pompeii. Many are saying the imagery here also evokes the 9-11 terrorist attacks with Arya caked in dust and ash and blood, piles of rubble, collapsing buildings, ash wafting through the air, and burn victims jumping from buildings. Really, no matter what historical lens you look at this, Sapochnik wanted our empathy to be solely with the victims of this city. And you'll notice Daenerys doesn't utter a single word for the entire sequence. And actually the tower that nearly collapses on Arya is the bell tower that Daenerys earlier ignored. You can actually hear the ring of that bell when it crashes to the ground by Arya. So Daenerys bypassing the bells isn't just a metaphorical FU. Her destruction literally weaponizes one of these bells against her allies. Also, I couldn't find it, but somewhere among the streets of King's Landing, Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers makes a cameo. He said he plays a commoner helping a woman, then makes a run for it. Down in the dungeons, Cersei and Jamie find their path blocked, and as Cersei accepts her fate, the light of the seven piano notes return briefly. Dun, dun. But as Jamie tells her, nothing else matters, only us, the music transforms back into the reigns of Castamere. So haunted by her decision to play with fire, this Lannister queen now pays the price for angering an even more fiery queen, the descendant of the dragon skulls that now close in on her. Jamie Lannister, meanwhile, dies the way he told Bronn he always wanted to die in season five. How do you want to go? In the arms of the woman I love. Now, I agree, it was really frustrating to see Jamie leave Brienne behind and join his toxic sister in death here, but 
despite Jamie's redeeming moves over the years, I guess Jamie remains addicted to Cersei. And like any addict, the risk of relapse is high. Jamie ends this series as a cautionary tale, like a Smeagol of Lord of the Rings. Another sometimes redemptive addict who ends up ending it all clinging to his precious. But I agree, it's a bummer. And this brings us back to Arya, shell-shocked by her apocalyptic surroundings, looking like the last person on Earth. Jawadi scores this chaos with screeching strings, which, as Arya collects herself, the notes limp their way into the House Stark theme. Arya finds the mother and daughter from before, but now they're dead from dragon fire. The girl's hand still clutches her toy, a white horse. Well, it used to be white before Drogon ruined it. And then, as if by magic or some divine spiritual force, a white horse appears. Some are saying this actually looks like Captain Strickland's horse from earlier in the episode. Not sure about that, but this horse brings up some key symbolism. In the Book of Revelation, there are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The white horse, conquest or victory. The red horse, war. The black horse, famine. And the pale horse, death. Many interpret Arya riding the horse to be the pale horse, or ashen horse in some translations. I looked and behold an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. Arya is an embodiment of death, carrying the power of the many-faced god. But we should point out that this horse is actually white, and he's covered in red blood, and the girl's toy horse is black. So really, all four horsemen are present in this scene. Some are speculating that this horse could be Bran, warging into a horse to help Arya, but I'd be pretty surprised if this horse, of all animals, is the animal that Bran finally decides to warg into, and not, you know, dragons. But the final image of Arya presents a mix of hope and despair. Arya appears to be fleeing the conflict, taking the Hound's advice to release herself from vengeance. But let's remember Arya's past of the Many-Faced God and the Ashes of King's Landing do echo some important history. In Westerosi past, ancient Valyria was also destroyed in a similar way by some mysterious event. The Targaryens and their dragons were the only survivors of the Doom of Valyria, but it was rumored that the Faceless Men actually actually played a role in that disaster. The Faceless Men wanted to rid the world of the evils of Dragonfire. So similarly, Arya may now play a role in saving the next generation from this kind of fire, because all the names on her kill list are now dead, which makes room for one more name on that list. Again, this episode is titled The Bells, the Bells of Surrender that Daenerys ignored, and the Bells that have historically announced a change in power, or as past generations have considered it, the flipping of a coin with what kind of ruler this next Targaryen would be. The Bells of the title also remind us of the famous quote from poet John Donne, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. His idea was that no man is an island, and the loss of any life is a loss for all. So here, the bells don't just toll for the loss of Cersei's rule, they toll for the loss of every life, of every victim of this battle. Whatever you felt after Game of Thrones' penultimate episode, it is a stark reminder of the theme that runs throughout George R. R. Martin's works, that the horror of war transforms all of us into beasts or prey, regardless of what colors we wear. Do you now see Daenerys as the cruelest villain of Game of Thrones? How does she compare to other cruel villains like Cersei, Ramsay Bolton, the Night King. Comment down below with your thoughts and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at EAVoss. And another reminder to join us in person for our Game of Thrones finale watch party at the Hotel Red Lion in Brooklyn this Sunday, May 19th. We will watch the finale together and host a live taping of our after show. Lots of fun stuff is planned, so check out the link in the description below for tickets and more details. Thank you for joining me, and if you live next door to the Mother of Dragons, maybe uh, take down your wind chimes.